Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 8th of May, 2013, and that smiling face you see is John Hunter, <laughs> author of World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements, back to my delight for a second show on the interview series. The reason you're not seeing a video of me is that it's 5.30 in the morning here in Delhi, India, and I would, I'm not presentable. <laughs> but John, thanks so much for being here. Steve, it's a real pleasure to be with you again. I think I was in Vancouver last time, and now you're in India. I, I don't know when we're ever going to get together to physically to meet, but it's nice to talk to you. You know, that would be a great pleasure for me. I, I, just as an aside, I'm going to tell you, I was telling my wife about the interview, and I said, I don't think I've ever had a guest who was so polite and thoughtful in correspondence. Really <laughs> have enjoyed that. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project coming up. We've got lots of fun things. The School Leadership Summit was in March. That was free, worldwide, virtual conference. All of those recordings are online. If you're coming to the ISTE conference, don't miss our shadow events, the ISTE Unplugged uh, activities that start with the all-day unconference called Hack Education. That's the Saturday before. Everybody is welcome. There is no charge. Just go to, to isteunplugged.com. Then we've got some really, really fun conferences coming up. Our worldwide STEM conference, sponsored by Hewlett-Packard, is actually being moved to September. It was going to be in July, but that's at stemxcon.com. Uh, the Future of Libraries conference is in October, October, excuse me, and the Global Education Conference, the five-day, 24-hour-a-day massive event, uh, is in November. That's at globaleducationconference.com. Coming up on this show, uh, tomorrow, Peter Gray on his new book, uh, Free to Learn, a great week of reading, I will tell you, two really important books. Then a little bit of a break, um, Ernie Turner and Simona David, Simona from Romania, are going to talk about improving schools one community at a time. I can't wait for that. Will Richardson talks about his short book, Why School. Franz Johansson is going to come on and talk about his book, The Click Moment. It's not an education book, but one of the more profound books I've read in a long time in large part because it sort of peels back the cover on the randomness of success and oftentimes the ways in which after the success we go back and attribute things, uh, causes that weren't actually there. And a reminder that sometimes those who are the winners um, are there by, by virtue of circumstance and a, re and a reminder that there's the potential in everybody. Anyway, I won't talk too much about that now, but we'll save it. We'll save our, keep our powder dry. Don Winkle on student entrepreneurship, and then Larry Farlazzo is going to come back and talk about his new book, uh, The Self-Driven self Learning. If you've missed any shows, they are all recorded. The uh, most recent show was Andrea Schleicher, uh, who talked about the PISA exam, really brilliant. Jim Popham before that. Um, on assessment. Uh, also, these have been great shows. The Andreas Schleicher and the Vivian Sert and Posse Salberg shows were um, sponsored by the Asia Society and really worth listening. Hopefully, there's other, there are other shows that are worth listening to as well. Again, all free up at futureofeducation.com. This is a chance for those of you in our live studio audience to tell us where you're participating from. You can do so by putting a note in the chat. You can also click on the star icon. It's the second one down. And if you double click on that, you can click on the map. It's fun to know 
the time, the temperature, anything more you want to tell us about where you are. Mm -hmm. New Zealand there. Looks like maybe Mexico. Wherever you are participating from, we sure appreciate it. Those of you listening to the recording, thanks so much for taking the time to do so. I'm going to move on from the map, but feel free to keep making notes in the chat. There's a Mighty Bell space for the show. It's a place where the conversation, the conversation can continue, and there are links and resources to John's material in there. That's the link in the chat. That link is also on my blog post for the show. So John, I was paying you some compliments before the show actually started, but I have to tell you, this was sort of a profoundly moving experience to read this book. It was not what I expected. Ah, what were you looking for, Steve? What were I you was thinking? <laughs> well, I wasn't looking for anything necessarily, but I sort of had this sense that it was going to be more sort of a, um, an instruction manual for holding the game. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, it's much more of a kind of um, view into your thinking and philosophy hmm. and the things that you that you sort of help to share about the importance of growth and learning. Mm -hmm. At least uh, for me, it was kind of a, a profoundly moving philosophical experience. Mm -hmm. I felt like I got to know you. I, I, the book hasn't been out that long, but are other people responding to this style in as positive a way as as I have felt? Well, Steve, thanks first for the compliment. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled you feel that way about it. It's, uh, it's been a journey, and you know, the philosophy that you might see in that is really something that evolved for me in the process. I didn't really come to this experience in the beginning of my teaching career with a, a set way of looking at the world. I was a young man, and so I was very open, I guess. And the game itself became a major force in shaping how I would understand how things did work in the world. It sort of was a, a kind of a mirror, really, to reflect um, <clears throat> reality and existence to me in, in an interesting way. So that, that was kind of an in-process philosophical development, I guess you would say. And people have been writing back. I mean, I've been getting really emotional letters. That, that's what's been so surprising. You know, you, you hope to get, well, that was very nice. I enjoyed it. It was stimulating. But these very emotional letters are coming. And I just got one today from a, uh, a service, an ex-service member who wrote a very short letter, but he talked about the instance in the book where I talk about having students write letters to the fictional parents of the fictional students, fictional uh, soldiers, soldiers that they wage in battle, and if they lose them, they have to write this letter, very short condolence letter, fourth graders writing it, and they read it out publicly in the class. And it, it's a mild thing in, in our class, but the resonance for other people has been astounding. This soldier said, you know, he teared up just reading that part in the book that that uh, the children are being asked to consider deeper consequences in a safe and appropriate way, but still consequences that he's had to go through physically. And he just hopes that we keep doing that, getting the children to be aware of what the consequences of such brave actions can be. So that was really heart heartwarming for me, and a lot of uh, support's been coming in that way. Well, there were two comments on my blog post about the show, both of which sort of alluded to this interest in having a an instruction manual. And yeah. um, 
and, and I sort of started the book that way. And then there's a place at which you say, um, I've spent a lifetime resisting the imperative to summarize or prescribe. Yeah. And that kind of it kind of brought the puzzle together for me a little and said, okay, this is about your life journey. You can't separate mm. the journey from the game. Mm. Um, I would not be happy with an instruction manual uh, <laughs> now that I have read the sort of fuller, kind of deeper, mm. reflective discussion of the game. But um, but there isn't an instruction manual, is there? I mean, you go around and do this for people, but people must ask you for the kind of cookie-cutter version of the game, right? <laughs> sure, sure. We we do get that, that request a lot. But, you know, what we found is that the experience itself is so complex and so deep and so unique to each individual class, to the time of year, to the situation, that to, to replicate would be contradictory in a way. So what we're hoping to do is really uh, inspire other teachers, other facilitators, to think about doing things in their own way, whether it's the World Peace Game or anything else, but the idea of going through the process we went through, which is a lot of self-reflection, being in a critical situation under immense pressures. You know, we're trying to save the entire world. That's a pressure we have on us, and it's a time pressure. So being in those situations where you're forced into the unknown, not knowing what to do, not having a map, not having this, this playbook or the manual or instructions, as you say, that has been so helpful in actually opening up creativity and making new things possible. You know, we found that when we followed, we followed the maps that had been laid before, when I was playing the game in the early decades, uh, I would simply have real-world countries in, in the game. And I stopped doing that after I realized the students were simply getting stuck because they were using solutions that their parents had given them or that they heard on the news. They were doing things adults had always done and that weren't working either. So I, I removed that and put in fictional countries, but real-world problem templates disguised a bit. And the idea was to open up creative thinking by liberating them from the conventions, the conventional uh, surroundings and environment that they come from, so they wouldn't have to think in the same way or uh, be forced to think in the same way because of the noise of the past, really, the traditions that had gone before them. So that kind of thinking, I think, is what opened it up for me to just be in the moment. There, there may be a manual, there may be instructions on how to do it, but I think it's going to be vastly different every time. And, of course, it's designed to fail. So we decided right in the beginning that we shouldn't try to market this as a game off uh, over the counter, you know. We couldn't imagine people going into a store and saying, yeah, I want that game, the one on the shelf, the one that is guaranteed to fail. John Hunter said it would fail really, really badly. That's the one I want for my kids. You know, we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't see many sales coming out of that. So it's going to have to be another way and more open kind of platform or encouraging people to explore their own possibilities independent of the World Peace game entirely. I'm not sure that game wouldn't be a success. I mean, you think about the games, Settlers <laughs> of Catan or Dungeons and Dragons or the massive you know, online games. Mm. There's something sort of deeply appealing mm. to youth about participating in these kinds of conversations. Your experience mm. with the game, I think, demonstrates that really um, in a very valuable way. But we've talked about on the show a lot about sort of youth fiction, Harry Potter and... Um, the uh, Hunger Games. These are, it seems to me, things that youth are hungry for, right? They're hungry for some sense of participation as thinking 
cognitive beings being able to participate in decisions. Um, and, and you're doing it with, among others, fourth graders. That's kind of stunning. <laughs> you think? Well, you know, to us, it's just what what we must do as teachers. You know, we uh, never think a situation is impossible or that a job is too big or a child can't be saved or reached somehow. I'm sure other teachers would would probably agree. There's there's got to be a way, and so we just simply took it as a given that we'll find a way. And of course, my mentors had always talked about the line of least resistance, about finding the way to the heart of the child finding out what they really love, what they care about, who they really, really are in that deep sense, and then tying that to the curriculum, building curriculum around and connecting it to that so that they, their passion sort of uh, fills or flows into the curriculum, and they begin to feel that it's theirs. You know, fourth grade, fifth grade, high school, it doesn't really seem to matter, that once they're on fire for something and they feel it's their something, that you've respected what they actually like and believe, no matter what it is, skateboarding, you know, uh, rainbow dolls or whatever the case might be, that's a, a sort of a line of least resistance. That's a way in. It doesn't have to stay focused on that. And of course, you can bring lots of content to that that they don't know. But you can work it into, at least what, from my experience, into that um, great aura of their passion. And they take it over. They become co-teachers. They become co-researchers. They give themselves homework because it's about what they want to do and they won't stop working on it, which is an amazing motivational tool. <laughs> you know, really, it comes from within themselves. It's not an external thing that a teacher applies from a, a pedagogical box. It's just uh, listening to and being with one-on-one -on -one in a very human way who's really there and respecting that and then allowing that to be as, as a part of the experience. That's been my experience with the World Peace Game fourth grade, high school, it really doesn't matter. They, you know, they're independent, individual, unique people, whether they're shorter than we are or taller than we are. And so I've just had a great time meeting these wonderful people who became co-teachers and co-researchers with me. An interesting fragility to this story that's, that's count, that counterbalances the, the depth of the World Peace Game. And the fragility for me is remembering that you did this for decades, for 30 years, and if it hadn't been for Chris coming into your classroom and recording it by film, it might never have gotten the publicity or press that it did. Are, are you struck by that fragility at all? And I lost your audio. Did you turn your mic off, maybe? Uh, let's see. Here we are. Are we there? Back, you're back. Yep. Yeah, great. Sorry about that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that because that's a very poignant point for me, actually. Um, just before Chris and I met, I was contemplating retiring, and I sort of looked on the World Peace Game fondly as my last piece of curricular work. And I was thinking, well, I, th I think it's good. I wish it could sort of go on because I really think it's got something to offer. But you know, I'm going to retire soon, and, and uh, nobody really seems to need it. So, you know, testing was coming in in a big way. So I was just going to put it in the closet and put on my fuzzy slippers and watch I Love Lucy reruns from here on out, I guess, you know. But Chris came in, and an independent filmmaker, an artist, a brilliant man, came into my room. And we made a collaboration. Uh, we thought it was about the game. We thought it was about teaching, uh, my teaching in particular, my classroom. But really, and I've said before, it, it really became a greater metaphor. It became a greater... Um, 
picture of teaching itself, and I saw myself disappear in that process. I saw the greater landscape of teaching uh, through the experience and learning through the experience. So Chris was really a, a, a great savior in a way. I mean, he saved the world peace game, so to speak. We saved the world, and he saved the world peace game, you might say. But just having an artist take an interest in something, you see the impact of the arts. You know, we talk about school programs in the arts and how important they are. And, and this fellow went to a school where he learned to be a filmmaker. And the, and the arts were so important to him and, and consequently became so important to me. And now to, you know, I, I guess it's in the millions of other people, too, that an artist could have that impact and help us in our school. I'm guessing that uh, while you might be flattered that somebody would actually kind of replicate the World Peace game, that, that in many ways you're, you're, you're as likely to be interested and supportive of other ways in which teachers are connecting with students at this kind of a level. Is that accurate? That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, uh, the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence, who offered an educational partnership to Chris Farina, the filmmaker, and myself, has been helping us uh, to spread this the content and the principles of the game and, and teaching. And consequently, we've put together a master class, you might say, for teachers. We've had about uh, 30 around the world now. I've been going with uh, Jamie Baker from the Martin Institute, the executive director. And we will actually meet with about 20 or 30 teachers for two days or five days and go into a very deep exploration, a probing of not only the World Peace Game initially up front, but uh, we go into their own personal practice in a deep way. The World Peace Game actually ends up being a sort of a Trojan horse. And if the teachers look inside, they can see a sort of mirror that reflects their own practice. And we have these very investigative questions and, and uh, insights that are developed going into their own work. And then at the end, they're challenged to come up with their own best curriculum they've ever seen in their entire lives with other master teachers in the room to help vet that. And they build this curriculum in the workshop. And when they leave, they have ownership of a masterpiece that they've created from deep inside their own educational experience. Maybe independent of the World Peace Game. They have nothing to do with the World Peace Game. Maybe influenced or inspired by it. But we're not bound to the World Peace Game. The idea is that we're trying to dig deep into the universal fundamentals of, of good teaching. And everybody brings a unique view on that themselves when they come to these master classes. So everyone leaves with a beautiful, unique piece of curriculum that they, then we charge them with spreading it all over the world as far as they can. OK, so this is from the book. This is a quote from you. I want my students to understand that appearances are illusory, that we almost never know at the moment we make a decision what the ultimate consequences of that decision will be. As individuals, our perspectives are limited. We do our best, but we can't really know what we have done or what it means. OK, this is so far afield from the kind of uh, <laughs> copy this lesson, use this tool in a classroom. Uh, I, I'm tempted to, to see, maybe to read more into the story of its creation than, than is appropriate, but I, I would love you to tell us sort of about this uh, middle of the night vision that led you to something that was so profoundly deep. Sure. Um, you know, I think the, the first part of your comment about appearances being deceiving or the unknown really being behind whatever we think we know. It just comes from life experience. It just comes from being in a classroom and having paid attention and a lot of self-reflection, really, 
to the fact that I really don't know so much, quite so much. And then the second part of that is, if that is the reality, if that is the truth, then let me not pretend, let me not hide that. Let me actually admit that to the children so that we can be on a level playing field. I mean, of course I'm older. I have some information they don't have. I have, ex I have experiences they've not had. But in just that opening of truthfulness about a lack of knowledge and experience, which they also have, we become kind of equals. And then we become explorers together. We started in some ways together. And I know myself, I, I just didn't know what to do with the World Peace Game at a certain point. It was a four foot by five foot plywood piece on the floor. And we were going along, solving some problems, and things were working out. But I just knew, I had a sense, it could be better. But I did not know what it was. And I thought for so long and tried to wrestle with coming up with a better idea and couldn't get it. And that, uh, of course, resonates with other stories in the book, too, about other uh, scientists who had uh, dreams or visions or insights once they walked away from the problem. And that was my case, certainly, because I went to sleep that night and, and one night after school and uh, woke up about 2 or 3 in the morning just wide awake with this huge, almost a visual configuration over my head of what this thing could be, this world peace game. It could be from two dimensions to three dimensions. It could be uh, unilaterally uh, broad and 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 incomprehensible and complex all at once. And I just had to write furiously to get it all down before it evaporated. You, you probably have had something like that yourself. So that kind of visitation comes once in a while if we're fortunate in our lives. And I just was fortunate to be there with a, with a, a small pencil to capture it. And then they try to work with it. And of course, the students, once they saw it, they got wind of it. You know, I brought them in and they looked at this towering plexiglass structure, it's, it's almost transparent. It is transparent. There's, there's hardly anything there, really. It's almost an empty space, which is another metaphor in the book. So around this empty space, we try to solve all these problems. But showing them the structure, they're just completely, you can just see their minds just crumble. And that's what I want to happen. I want them to be overwhelmed, as I was in the vision of this thing, and have to work my way, have to dig my way up out of that hole of unknowing to knowing. And that sometimes difficult process where we have to be safe and we have to be um, supported in going through that in school makes for, I think, deeper and better learning when we're actually pushed into the unknown, and, and gently so maybe, but we have to find our way back with help and support. But in that growing, in that, that clawing to light that we, we do, the students do, I think there's so much great, so much greater learning that occurs. And that's what happened to me that night, I believe. <laughs> so I love that parallel. And it's one I've struggled to kind of verbalize myself. right? So I can go through days, sometimes even weeks, of just kind of uh, fulfilling the time quota. And then something happens. And in literally two or three hours, I've done the work of two or three weeks. And it kind of stuns me huh. how um, Sometimes there needs to be a pause, and the, the sort of the river flow of life shifts, and you realize, okay, forcing myself to work didn't actually do it, but all of a sudden, this, at this particular moment, everything kind of comes together, and the creativity and the organization happen. And I know that there's some controversy in the world of innovation as to whether or not there are those moments of insight, but I, I feel like they do exist. And part of what I liked about the story was that you can draw a parallel from that to respecting how students' brains work. 
and they're not gonna they're not gonna produce at any given moment exactly what you want them or or think they should, right? But that it comes with time. And it feels like time is kind of the unspoken one of the unspoken uh. themes of the book for me was the time mm -hmm. there's there's a need for time and and things take time and changes take place and teachers need time to prepare and for their own kind of journeys. Um, does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Just just imagine if we had uh, a greater time frame for assessments. If all students had much more time, I think they might do much better. You know, it, it allows for the time lengthening the time or, or allowing time. Uh, seems to, to deepen the possibilities, really. It gives us the time you're talking about to walk away and then suddenly come back and you're energized to do the work of three people almost. In the, in the game and, and also in the book, we talk about this uh, phenomenon called click. And I see it happen in individual students and also as groups where they've reached a level of frustration, of despair, of not knowing and, and not being happy with not knowing. And they'll stop. They'll simply hit a pause. And there's nothing else they can do. The space is suddenly empty. There's an empty space because there's nothing they can put in it. Nothing works. Nothing has worked. And then suddenly, there's almost an audible click. You can almost hear it. Something will switch in the room and everybody comes alive. They all seem to understand at once and get it at once. And they get the solutions that they've been looking for and have, have not been able to find. And then they go into that state, and you, you alluded to it too, uh, the, the writer of the book Flow, uh, Csikszentmihalyi, uh, back in the, I think it was the 90s, late 80s, wrote a beautiful book called Flow. And in that book, he talked about how once that click happens, you can go into this enhanced state. He says there's an increase of psychic energy where you simply become more powerful, wiser, smarter, faster. Time seems to slow down and so forth. And it's all because we hit a wall or we stop. It's almost like the, the opposite caused that uh, to occur. By not doing, we're able to do more. And I don't know if we can quantify that by, by research data and so forth. But if we allow students to do it in class as a regular habit, uh, teachers call it lag time or think time or wait time. But if we can put that into a lot of different situations, I've seen, at least in the World Peace game, that time space where students are engaged in a nonverbal, deeply thoughtful, cognitive way to be so fruitful and so, um, so helpful to them personally as they get their own realizations, they understand that, that they have realized and have come through something. That pause that you mentioned. Okay, so that's sort of the line of the moment for me. You just said, by not doing, we're able to do more. So, mm -hmm. so this reflects, I think, some yeah. of your life experiences, the times you spent um, outside of the United States and in India and China and the like. And I'd love to give you a chance to talk about that. But that's in deep contrast yeah. to respond to every email when it comes in, to the sort of corporate culture of quarterly results rather than long-term thinking. It does feel as though that's a space we have to carve out, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you made me think just now, what happens when we stop for a few moments and we're not responding to any of the stimuli that's around? I mean, there's so much stimuli going on, so much stimulus going on, how can we even keep up 
it's it's almost impossible. We have to go to sleep to escape, really. But if we deliberately unplug or stop, <coughs> excuse me, paying attention for just a little while to the external, and we to we were to just allow the present self, ourselves, and the internal world to bubble up or to be there. I mean, thoughts come and go. They're kind of like clouds, but behind the thoughts, just the essence of our existence itself, just to experience it. Maybe even feel time, I don't know, but just to have that moment. It's such a rich and deep thing. And we used to know that in this culture. We used to have thinkers. You know, we used to have people who would think, and they were respected for doing that. And they had interesting results that they'd come. And now our thinking is so speeded up you know, we're required to give a sound bite. We're required to respond instantly. You know, you don't want to be caught flat-footed in a debate on television. And, you know, everything becomes an image, and you're leaning and supporting this kind of superficial um, life in the world, really. And so being able to disconnect from that or step back from that or take a pause and allow that space and the space to deepen and grow sometimes. As in the game, sometimes there are moments, there are minutes when nothing is said, nobody moves because they just don't know what to do. They stop until something gives, like a, a glacier calv calving, you know, and then the movement happens, a splash occurs, there's a new formation, but only because there was a stopping point, uh, nothing there. And, of course, traveling around the world, as you mentioned, you know, you see other people's, other cultures' examples of how they do things, and the last... Uh, that trip that I was referring to in my book was 80, 1987. I was in China and in Japan in the early 90s. And this was before, uh, I guess, the huge uh, grip of the Internet really had taken hold, at least in those cultures as far as I could see. So there was more uh, traditional or conventional or regular space and time allowed. And I was able to sink into that. And that deeply affected me. And I carry that with me, I think, as I try to go back into my fast-paced world here in America. So the limits of this hour become evident really quickly. <laughs> oh, see, we need more time. Know, we need that space. I know. <laughs> Having just discussed that, but there, there were four things that I think I'm going to really take away from the book, things that have sort of moved me at a deep level. The first was this idea of the empty space. We've, we've talked about it a little here, but, but you talk in, in large part, you, you describe this through the experiences you had with your parents and this willingness or um, the, the understanding of allowing things to emerge. Um, right. You want to talk a little bit about how your mom and dad did that with you? Sure, sure. They, I, I have to say, I mean, uh, they were unusual people. Uh, they didn't talk a lot in social situations. They mostly were listeners, and they smiled a lot, and they were very warm and friendly. But there wasn't a lot uh, of output into the, the social world constantly. There, there was a lot of space at home. And uh, I was kind of brought up in that so that with my, you know, adolescent and teenage years of just being frenetic and frantic, you know, my mother would sometimes just simply put her hand on my shoulder and just say my name, just say John. And that would just cause a complete screeching halt to everything. And the space would emerge. Suddenly there it was and I could stop for a moment and 
reconnoiter. I could take uh, take a measure of the situation and really learn something or gain something just from not doing at that moment. And of course, my parents, uh, we grew up in the South in Richmond, Virginia, and so at that time in the 50s and 60s, we were living under segregation. And so that, I think, had its own power in a way of of basically, basically making it a more of an insular world in my family and my community. And that, uh, in one way, was a drawback. It was a, certainly a barrier. But uh, on the other hand, it, it caused a sort of a cultivation of some kinds of talents that, that couldn't be expressed. And I think that waiting in, in silence and uh, awarely and observantly waiting in the silence, I think those were kind of... Uh, uh, components or fruits that came out of that kind of enforced cultivation, really. And that, that at, at the time, of course, didn't look like a very good thing, but it appears that, I guess, like uh, someone going into a monastery and being in enforced silence, you know, at first it's, it's a chore, it's difficult, but after a while there's a richness and a, uh, uh, there's much fruit in that. And I think that's what came out of that. And of course, when I went to the East and learned about contemplative uh, traditions and read Sun Tzu and uh, the Tao Te Ching and things like that, you know, I, w I was struck by how they really paralleled or even resonated or even reflected what my parents were doing naturally. I mean, under the situation they lived under, uh, it was it was startling, you know, to to come from a an African-American home in the 50s and 60s and find yourself outside of a, an ancient temple in Nara in Japan and think, wow, there's some real, real resonance in the silence of this temple and the silence of my, my parents' living room. Yeah, so profound. Uh, Wendy there calls it hang time. I like that. Um, oh, I love that, Wendy. That's great. So this tolerance for not knowing seems to me to be directly related to our perceptions of control, right? So not only are you thinking about, um, or are you, are you recognizing and being willing to sit with the discomfort of not knowing and helping your students to experience that, but it seems like that that leads to then a very thoughtful discussion about how much should do can we actually control versus how much do we respect other people's opportunities to self-direct or, or think. And control mm -hmm. is an interesting uh, way of approaching kind of the last few decades that you've been playing the game, right? In American culture, it feels like we were afraid to have our children out of doors. We, we sort of manage their every moment. We now can track where they're going. Um, mm. how, how do you approach this issue of control and ultimately versus self-direction? Mm. Well, you know, I, I live in a laboratory. I've got a teenage daughter, so I have a first-hand <laughs> experience of, of this situation. I'm sure you, you parents out there know what I'm talking about. Um, what, what I've learned in the game, and this has happened gradually over decades, is I've, I've ceded control bit by bit to the students. And I haven't done it willingly. <laughs> they have demanded it. They have asked for it. Mr. Hunter, may we do the coin toss? Mr. Hunter, may we pull the random cards? Mr. Hunter, may, may we read the crises? And they ask for, they want power, they want to assume the power and control, the, what control they can have over their own lives and their own interaction with this experience. And so over 35 years, there's very little I do in the game anymore. I, I get to ring the little bell. That's about all they allow me to physically do. I ask questions. I, I try to pose uh, consequences. But I really can't interfere with their process anymore. 
And what I've understood by that, what I've, what I've been brought to understand is that we really do not have control in life at all anyway. This is a frightening and almost heretical thing to say, but if we really look at it in this, in this quantum physics universe we live in, you know, we're, we're very, I, I would be very arrogant to think I have any real control. It may appear to be so in a small sphere, but you know, who am I to think I can really reach in and change someone else's life? I can't even change my own life. I can't control my own mind or thoughts. I have my own prejudices and biases I work on. So the fact that we do not have control, facing that fact as I had to face the fact of you know, myself being full of flaws and being not the person who knows everything that I hoped the teacher would be, the teacher I would be, would be like, that additional um, acceptance of reality allowed me then to make some changes and to do some work. Whereas if I had pretended or tried to hide or tried to, you know, crisis manage a situation of, of my own awareness where I didn't want to be aware that I really didn't have control, you know, would have made a, a, a greater difficulty in some ways. So simply understanding and accepting that and then moving forward with the children seeing me go through that. Ms. Hunter, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He said he's never seen this experience before. He doesn't know how to tell us what to do. We'll have to help him. We'll have to figure it out together because nobody's ever done this before. And the sense of adventure, the sense of wonder, the sense of pioneering, you know, the children feel for a real pioneering experience. We're going where nobody's gone before in this simulation. We're trying to save the world. And, you know, now that we've been to the Pentagon, they really do feel that there's a possibility they could be helping to save the world. They've been recognized by adults who are in that, in that sphere at that level. So that kind of uh, urgency comes in, that kind of gleeful, joyful urgency comes in. We've got to help Mr. Hunter figure this out for his sake and for our sakes. And that comes from me not being in control and not knowing what to do and accepting the fact that that's the actual reality of the situation. I know some things, but I'll tell them what I think I know and stand back to see what actually happens. You write in the book, I realize for the thousandth time that I can never really know what they are taking from this experience, either what it means to them now or what it might mean to them later. It feels like part of what you're saying is that you have to have trust in the process. And that, uh, and you kind of describe in the book the many, many times when you question that trust, but that you then just trust and how things work out. Uh, there is a temptation for certainty. Does that end up often driving teach, driving teaching rather than the trust in the process? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that trust comes uh, when we uh, move past the fear of failing. And what I, I learned, uh, I had to simply fail and fail many times. And the game fails many times every time we play. It's designed to do that massively because I've understood that coming through failure is a greater strength than never having failed at all. I mean, you may be great right out of the gate. You may be a genius or a prodigy. But having struggled and built those kind of conceptual muscles, those kind of persevering, perseverance muscles that you build when you do fail or not hit the mark the way you want to, that kind of learning seems to be richer, deeper, and more hard won. And students appreciate it. And if they can fail in a safe way, then the trust is there. There, there is no fear of punishment. 
There is no moral stigma to not being absolutely correct every time. We remove that in the game. There's no way anybody could be correct about saving the world in every instance, in every crisis scenario. So we're removing that onus, and students can then try. They simply have permission to try. And knowing that it's such a big thing, adults haven't done it, so if we're not doing it, it's okay. You know, we're just children. <laughs> we start with that uh, assumption. But as they go on, they start to understand they're doing things adults have not done and don't seem to be able to do. And there are reasonable, practical solutions that the Defense Department and Defense Secretary Leon Panetta wanted to discuss with them how they did this, how they handled insurgencies, how they handled their supply chain in the field when climate change was affecting their, their forces. Those kind of discussions actually took place with nine-year-olds and a defense secretary because the trust that they don't have to be correct every moment. They simply can try full-heartedly and creatively, and that is fine. That is very good, and they will keep trying until they get something that works. We always know we're going to get somewhere. We may not at the beginning, but it's okay that we're going to get somewhere and we may not at the start. So one of our favorite things in our family is it all ends well. If it's not well, it just hasn't ended. <laughs> I love it. So <laughs> bravo, Steve. I want to keep coming to your house. That's great. <laughs> it all ends well. If it's not well, it just hasn't ended yet. So you talk Beautiful. about failure as an incomplete perception. And I thought this, this was maybe one of my favorite parts of the book, your dad's question of how are things different than they seem. Um, there is something really important about the long-term perspective. Um, and, and you also talk about the benefits of defeat. You maybe want to touch on the story of Chad and what you thought was your worst day ever as a teacher and kind of how that got oh. reframed later? Steve, thank you for asking that. That's one of my favorite stories. It, it happened to me, and I, I just relished that, that, it, that this failure happened. Um, I was teaching in a uh, public school in Maryland. Uh, middle school. I think I was doing eighth grade. I had a homeroom and my eighth graders have been working mostly all year on a literary magazine. This is before computers were really big into our production. I think Mac 2Es or something like that we had. But um, the students had worked so hard and they had produced this literary work that was snarky, it was funny, it was silly, it was goofy, you know, it had uh, incomplete parts in it, just didn't make any sense. It was funny. And of course, at this school, everything had to bypass the principal before it was published. And we were, I think, at the end of April, so we had very little time to turn this around and get it published before school was over in June. So our principal, uh, I have to charitably say, was was known as a very difficult person, and had had some problems. Um, but our principal took one look at the magazine. I think it was on a Friday, uh, on a Thursday afternoon, about two o'clock. We we're going to go home about three. And word got back to my homeroom at the end of the day, just before they left, and a note from the principal saying she was essentially disgusted with this magazine. She felt it was insubordinate, rude, and impolite, that there was innuendo and slang, that they were making innuendo about certain staff members, and it would not stand. And this magazine was going to see the inside of the trash can. That was that. Now, that just broke their hearts, and it broke mine. I didn't know what to do. And so the students packed up and went out and caught the buses. And I thought, well, we'll just 
go and re recycle it tomorrow, see if we can go back tomorrow. So I go in the morning and I'm opening my door to the homeroom and I hear this roar out in the hall as I step inside. I step back out and I see a mob of students coming down the hall, my homeroom class included. They're slamming lockers and books and they're shouting and yelling and they're waving their notebooks and they're headed to the office. This is about the literary magazine. You know what's going to happen. They're going to go give the principal a piece of their mind. And you know what's going to happen then is there are going to be suspensions and expulsions. It's not going to be good for them. And I, I was outnumbered, and, and I didn't seem to have any voice. At this point, I was just frightened. And I stepped out in the hall not knowing what else to do. And I looked, and I saw the, the, the ringleader. I saw Chad. He was one of the editors. And I called his name, Chad. Where are you going? Where are you guys going? Just trying to make it in a kind of light, fun way. We're going down in the office. We're going to give Miss So-and-so a piece of our mind. She's just not right. And this will not last, and we, we're not going to have it. I said, oh my goodness, this is, this is really serious. Well, look, if you are serious about this, would you do me a favor? I want to show you something in the magazine before you go. Step into the room. And somehow or another, they fell for it. <laughs> I mean, they trusted me, I guess. I, I abused my trust. They stepped inside. I locked the door behind them. That's kind of illegal. And I leaned against the door and I said, now we're going to work this out to save you from getting expelled. And there was shouting. There was screaming and yelling. And finally, after about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, we agreed to write a letter to the principal explaining our, our grievances and asking for reconsideration or modifications. And then I let them out and go to class. Now, in middle school, when you hold up a, a huge group of students for the, from the master schedule, uh, time clocks, you upset the entire school schedule. So they all got into trouble just for being late. I got into trouble for holding them up. And they were called to the office. Some were suspended who carried on the argument. I was called to the office at the end of the whole episode. And the principal sat me down. She said, Mr. Hunter, we're going to terminate your contract. I'm going to fire you. You're not going to work here anymore. And if I have anything to do with it, you're not going to ever be a teacher again anywhere. This is insubordinate. I have this under control. How dare you go over my head? And I went home just completely broken to talk to my wife and my newborn child that I'm going to be out of work and out of a job and I've lost my career, it appeared. And I went back and somehow or another, so close to the end of the year, they couldn't let me go just like that. So I managed to get through the till graduation without being fired and I immediately resigned. And we sought another job and ended up in Virginia, another state. We were in Maryland, now we're in Virginia. Ten years go by, Steve. Ten years, I'm working in my elementary school, and I get a phone call from the University of Maryland. I know no one there. I have no affiliations there whatsoever. I know it's a long story, but I'm coming to the end. And uh, the, the person on the phone says, Mr. Hunter, you've won an award. Uh, we'd like for you to come and receive your award. And I thought it was a phone scam, but it turns out it was an actual award. And uh, they offered to drive me up in a car. I didn't believe them, so I drove myself in my Volkswagen Beetle. Got there to the university, and there were limousines everywhere. There were 25 teachers, 24 teachers like myself, who had been nominated by former students for the Philip J. Merrill Master Teacher Mentor Award at the University of Maryland as a teacher who changed a life of a student. And I went in, and there was Chan in the hall waiting to greet me. The, the university had made a very serious effort. They had flown in a teacher from Indonesia. They would flown in a teacher from Germany. Just for this event, they didn't take no for an answer. You had to come. And the award was wonderful. We got a great award and a huge luncheon on linen tablecloths, silverware in China. The entire board of uh, visitors was there. And at the very end, the, and here's the thing. 
this is the thing. At the very end, the last part of the award was a partial scholarship to each of these 25 teachers, each of us, to a student in our home districts, a partial scholarship to attend the University of Maryland. So because I had had the worst day of my life, my career was ended, something terrible, awful had happened. The appearance of that was in front of me. Because of that seeming disaster, some child I didn't even know in my home district, some high school student I had never met, would get a chance to go to college. You know, you can never see the full effect of your career as an educator, of your gestures as an educator. You know, it goes out, you're reaching through time. You know, you're reaching through decades, and you just can't see it always. But everything you do has an effect. And I understood at that moment that everything you do, whatever it seems to be, if you do it with the intention of a great teacher that you want to help students learn, it has an effect. And it may not ever be seen by you, but it has an effect in the world. That's a lovely story, John, and it, uh, the chat um, reflects that same, the same feelings that I had in, in reading it in the book. Um, okay, so I want to raise as sort of my final significant takeaway from the book, one that I think may actually be a little bit harder to talk about. You're so judicious and careful when you describe the visit to the Pentagon, but I sense that there's this sort of troubling aspect of what you refer to in the book as mental colonization. Right, this idea mm. that the students come, the reason you don't actually name the, the countries, names of actual real countries is a concern that they've, they've already imbibed a certain amount of perception uh, that's not that's right. uh, independent thinking, but it's just the culture around certain topics. And, um, and you stress in the book that the ultimate point of education is to express compassion. Is there a sort of troubling trend right now in education around this mental colonization, this idea that instead of producing independent thinkers, we focus a lot on producing very compliant critical thinkers but not independent thinkers? Well, Steve, I, I think it, it comes, at least from my view, uh, you know, with our very human need to feel secure, to feel comfort, to feel safety. We, we may feel that if we can just get hold of the universe and, and shape it to, to the form we'd like for it to be that fits us and suits us, that everything will be all right. And if we can have our children learn what we think is important, and if they really get it, if we make sure they get it somehow, and we can verify that they've gotten what we think they ought to have, they'll be okay. But the world has bypassed us. I mean, it's so different now than when that first first paradigm was put forth. So in a way, we're, we're teaching uh, with a past set of tools to, to a situation that will be coming and hasn't even evolved fully yet. You know, we're trying to teach 20, 30 years from now when the students we're teaching are going to have to apply what they've learned. And so how can we do that? How can we solve for X? How can we teach them to be ready for, to be prepared for, to be able to deal with and think about what uh, we don't even know is coming? And the, what I've learned in the World Peace Game is to escape that mental colonization. As a teacher, I have to be brave enough to actually strip away the conventional thinking, to try and tear down what they think they know 
it sounds like the opposite of educating, where you want to put information in. I'm trying to basically wipe it out. So they have to start from zero. The World Peace Game is designed to completely overwhelm students. There's no way they can get a handle on it. It's too much, too, too much. They're not even given the vocabulary before we start. They have to learn it sink or swim, in process, in use, in context, through repetition. They learn the vocabulary of a diplomat, diplomatic language. So this whole urgency of, of need, this whole not being able to depend on what your parents have taught you or told you, but having to find it out for yourself, that's the key, I think. You know, If we lean on past knowledge, that's great up to a point. There's wonderful knowledge we can have to use from the past. We don't want to reinvent the wheel all the time. But then if we've learned it ourselves, if we've had to come to it our own self through experimentation, that's what we do in science classes. We experiment ourselves. We do what Edison did. We do what Einstein did. We try to, to replicate or to duplicate what they've done so we can have the experience ourselves. So I'm trying to simply make an open space of our past experience simply allow it to be open and invisible and then allow the children to look forward and just to be able to use what's inside themselves to pull on that huge wealth of resources that's in within each of us we neglect sometimes because we have the internet <laughs> we think well it's all out there i don't have to i have nothing really of value inside but there's much more wealth inside than there is on the internet i've found and I don't want to preach that or, or tell my students that. I want them to discover that. And they do. They say when they finish the World Peace game, Mr. Hunter, we can do anything. We can solve any problem. At the end of the game, they want me to give them more problems because they've solved all the problems that we had. And they want more because they're in the mastery level of solving problems. They feel they can solve anything, that they can handle anything. And of course, you know, the world's a bigger place than that. But to leave school with that kind of confidence, that kind of personal experience of having solved intractable problems without leaning on past formulas and other people's designs and ideas, but having come up with it ourselves, our collective wisdom, that kind of um, richness, that kind of satisfaction, I think, really seems to last. And I have students coming back from decades ago saying, that really is the lesson, Senator. This lasts with me. It lasted because I did it. We did it. And it was a brand new thing when we did it. And yet it had been done, of course, in history many times. But we did it. John, it's just so fun to get to know you. The, 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 the book, I felt like, was just such a, a, a great look at you or, or you know, sort of a way of, of um, being in conversation with you. Love the book. I'm just desperately sad that I have to stop the show five minutes early because as I go, go. catching a flight and I know if I'm this disappointed right, right. our audience is going to be equally disappointed. <laughs> oh, anyway, yeah. the book is World Peace and that. other <laughs> <laughs> World Peace and other fourth grade achievements. I still hope you'll buy it and read it. It's a terrific book. It is available in Amazon, uh, probably at a library near you. Thanks John. Thanks everybody. Sure appreciate your taking the time today. Thank you so much, Steve. Good flight, safe journey, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Sorry to end early, but uh, it is the, the moment. Take care now. Bye.